Listen, just for the record, every time it's mentioned that we're having worship on Christmas morning, my, sh- my daughter shoots me glares. <laughs> if looks would kill, I'd be dead dozens of times over. But it falls to Sunday and that's what we do. We're Jesus' people and we worship on the day of resurrection. And so we'll be together on Christmas morning and we'll be glad about it. The good news that we look at this morning is in Philippians chapter 2. Last week we saw Jesus presenting himself in glory from Revelation chapter 1. And this morning we see him in a very different light. He shows himself very differently in our passage here in Philippians chapter 2. Young Christians, young theologians, this chapter says, this passage says that Jesus makes himself something. What is it that Jesus makes himself? Listen for that. See if you can find it as we go along. This is the good news, though it's different from last week. It's the same gospel. Jesus finds us in our need and loves us with his tenderness. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Pray with me. Mild you laid your glory by, but why on earth would you have done it? Show us now, Lord Jesus, and make our hearts alive with the truth of it, the beauty and the wonder of it. Give to us fruit by your grace, fruit that wasn't there before, fruit that we try to stifle and hold back in ourselves, but fruit that honors you and fruit that is your pleasure. Do all of these things with us and in us and through us, and for these things we will give you our thanks. We ask it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. And would you be seated? By the time you bring all of the boxes down out of the attic and you get out the Christmas decorations that have been in the family forever, the ones that have the power to summon the happy ghosts of Christmas past, by the time you string the garland over every imaginable surface in the house and you green every room, by the time you replace every burnt out bulb and you wrap everything in the magic glow of electric light, you could almost forget what Christmas is about. 
Everything's so ornamented and tinseled and wrapped and scented and lit up. You could almost forget that Christmas begins as a story of emptiness. But thank God, he never forgot. The editorial heading in most of our Bibles, sitting atop this passage, by the way, is awful. Terrible. Christ's example of humility. Worst heading imaginable. If you have the faith for it, you can take permanent ink and cross it out and pen in something different, almost anything different. Christ's ministry of humility. Christ's gift of humility. The gospel of Jesus' humility. But the example of His humility leads us in the wrong ways. It smacks of why can't you be more like Jesus? Jesus was humble. Why can't you be humble? What's wrong with you? Like old man Gower at the Bedford Falls Pharmacy putting arsenic in capsules to send them to a sick household and smacking George Bailey in his bad ear till it bleeds. When George tries to save the old man from his deadly mistake, telling us to be humble like Jesus is the wrong medicine and it might just kill you. But it's commonly prescribed in the church. It sings through Christmas carols even. Once in Royal David City has the worst example of it in verse 3. That's why we don't sing this verse. And through all his wondrous childhood, he would honor and obey, love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle arms he lay. Christian children all must be mild, obedient, good as he. Well, if we could do that, we wouldn't have needed the incarnation in the first place. If we could do that, we wouldn't have needed the the cross to cast its long shadow back over the stable. If we could do any of that, we wouldn't have needed the resurrection to break with its light on the manger. But the passage doesn't say, why can't you be more like Jesus? What the passage says is, you already are these things in Jesus, whether you know it or not, whether you're experiencing them and exercising them. Did you miss it in the passage? It's there clearly. If there's any encouragement in Christ, this encouragement is yours, in other words. If there's any comfort in Him, because after all, you're joined to Him, you're united to Him. If there's any comfort from His love and participation in His Spirit, then complete my joy, Paul says. Have this joy for yourselves by being of the same mind. Have the same love. And then all the way down in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have this. And if Jesus is humble and we're in Jesus, then humility shouldn't be such a stretch for us. But it feels so distant and so foreign because of our lingering sense of emptiness. Now this is a controversial passage. There are nasty theological arguments waged over it. And it all centers on verse 7, which reads, Jesus emptied himself, that really is the word, 
Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. The dispute is over the word emptied. It opens the way for all kinds of misunderstandings, misinterpretations, bad speculative readings. Because after all, if there's one thing we don't like, it's mystery. We want everything explained right down to the finer points. So about 150 years ago, a group of German theologians and a group of English theologians after them reasoned, how could Jesus be omnipotent, all-powerful, How could Jesus be omniscient, all-knowing, as a human infant? He must have emptied himself of divine attributes and divine essence. Well, we don't know entirely another group of theologians answered. We can't exactly explain it, but we know this. He didn't empty himself of any of his divinity in the Incarnation. The classic explanation of these verses is remaining what he was, Jesus became what he was not. Remaining God the Son, he became human also. And that's what we believe. But in truth, there has always been confusion about what these verses say about Christ's self-emptying in the Incarnation. There's a very famous Christmas poem by the beat poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Christ Climbed Down, and it opens this way. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year and ran away to where there were no rootless Christmas trees hung with candy canes and breakable stars. There are six stanzas in the poem and everyone starts the same. Christ climbed down from his bare tree this year and he ran away. And in each verse, Jesus runs away from some Christmas trimming that is crowding him out of his holiday. And then the poet lists all these antagonists, verse by verse, Bing Crosby carolers. Red flannel suited, fake white bearded North Pole saints. The same actors who play the wise men in television dramas advertising a particular brand of whiskey at the commercial break. And the babe in the manger, not coming as a holy interruption, not a miraculous intrusion into our world, but delivered by mail order from Sears and Roebuck, plastic and hard-molded and fake, not living and dangerous. Jesus climbs down from his bare tree, the cross, to find that his death has done no good and his coming has had no effect. It means nothing. People don't need him. They've distracted themselves from their soul emptiness with commercialism and consumerism. And for that part of it, the poem is right. But here's where it's wrong. In the poem, Jesus is empty because he is looking for something he doesn't have. He is needy. And he needs our recognition and our affection and our adoration 
to make his coming and his death effectual. And by the end of the poem, Jesus is searching for some virgin's womb he can put himself in. At the end of the poem, he's even more empty because he doesn't receive any of these things from us. According to the poem, we make Jesus empty. We make him nothing. That's not what the text says, and we don't have that power. The oldest theologians in the church have always interpreted verse 7 this way. Jesus didn't empty anything out of himself. No substance, no essence, no nature. He emptied himself out of a heavenly glorious form and into an earthly and inglorious form. He emptied himself out of his position and reputation as the heavenly son. But never did he empty himself out of his relation to the father as the heavenly son. He emptied himself out of the role of sitting heavenly prince into the role of the heavenly servant on earth in flesh. He emptied himself out of his place of privilege and honor and into our place of need. He poured himself out onto the steep, unscalable slope of God's law that shows true beauty and holiness. We just can't ever keep it. And he emptied himself out under the heavy sentence of judgment for the smallest of sins. They are that much against God's character. And he poured himself out into the stale, pallid kiss of death. You could say he emptied himself out into our emptiness. He swam in our emptiness. But very important here, this emptying of himself was not an emptying of loss or of need. It wasn't a demotion. It wasn't disapproval. Jesus didn't have daddy issues and he wasn't trying to prove himself or win his father's love. It wasn't even an emptying of sadness, the emptying of Jesus. I've told some of you this story before, but when I was growing up as a kid in northern Michigan, the game of choice for schoolboys on the playground was king of the mountain. They should never have let us play this game. There is no way kids are still playing this game. By this time on the calendar, by mid-December in my hometown... We would have accumulated on the ground anywhere between four to six feet of snow. And snow plows would come and clear the streets. And they would clear off the blacktop on the playground and stack the snow into hard-packed snow peaks standing ten feet or more at the highest point. The game was simple. The object of the game is in the title. You would scramble to the top of the mountain... And hold it all by yourself for as long as you could while all the other boys of the school were scrambling to the top to throw you down the mountain. It was mayhem. It was an uprising. It was war. It was beautiful. In the emptying of Jesus, no one has thrown him down the mountain. 
He has willingly walked down and made his place at the foot. And here's what you need to know. And don't ever forget this. It was an emptying of joy. It was an emptying from fullness. Not because Jesus stood in need of anything. Think of it this way. When the strange diplomats from the dark realms of the east followed the star to find either the infant Jesus or the toddler Jesus. It doesn't matter. And when they parked their train of camels outside and brought their gifts inside with them, and when they unwrapped their expensive, lavish tributes to give to the heavenly king they had never heard of, they weren't giving him anything he didn't already have. In fact, they were preaching to him, in your lowness, you still have all things. This one-mindedness that Paul calls us to in the opening verses. The son had exactly that with the father. This same-heartedness that Paul calls us to. They had it. This corporate joy. This perfect participation with one another. It was theirs. So by the time you get to the end of verse 6. Jesus doesn't want equality with the father. Jesus doesn't want the Father's place. Jesus doesn't want the Father's position. He doesn't need it. The Son loves the way the Father has been perfectly Father to Him. And the Son loves being perfectly Son to the Father. Somewhere in eternity past, the Father and Son made a covenant of redemption. The Father and Son saying together, what we have with each other is so good, others should have it with us. We should bring others into it, and they make a covenant to save. The Father decreeing that sinners should be saved, and Jesus giving himself to accomplish the Father's salvation with his own life and body. Jesus, before time, says... Father, I love you so much and love your love to me. Fill up creation with me. Fill up your law with me. Fill up scripture with me. Fill up prophecy with me. Fill up your kingdom with me. Fill up redemption with me. Fill up your justice, your rejection of sin with me. Fill up the cross of atonement with me. Fill up your hatred of that thief death with me. Fill up the hearts of your people with me. Fill up your desire to forgive entirely with me so that heaven and earth can be filled with your praises, Father. So in verse 8, where Jesus humbles himself and he becomes obedient in his human form all the way to death, In verse 8, where Jesus says, literally, out of love, I will obey you, Father, even if it kills me. It isn't Jesus doing anything new. It's Jesus loving his sonship and flaunting it. It is Jesus expanding it. Spreading it out. Taking it to the furthest degree and extent possible. It is Jesus adopting others into his own sonship while refusing to let any of it go for himself. Holding on to his joyful sonship 
all the way through the pains and the scorn and the rejection of the cross in the form of our flesh means the sonship that Jesus gives to us can't ever be broken. But who would do this? Who would give up the privileges of the heavenly son and take on the heavy burdens of the earthly servant? Well, not a son who's uncertain. Not a son who doesn't already have his father's complete pleasure. Not a son for whom this is a dicey gamble. Not a son whose sonship is at stake. But a son perfectly faithful would do it. A son unwilling to trade or give his sonship away like Esau who was suckered out of it for a bowl of beans. A son perfectly favored by his father would do it. A son who when his name is spoken before the father, it doesn't bring a grimace to the father's face. Not even a shade of disappointment in the Father when the Son's name is spoken. Every time the Son's name is spoken, the Father's eyes well up with tears and His heart floods with burning affection for His Son. A Son like that wouldn't hesitate or haggle. He wouldn't be able to get out of heaven fast enough to put Himself in a virgin's womb and a feed trough and up on a cross and in the gaping doorway of a tomb forced open from the inside. A son who has everything and loses nothing. The emptying of Jesus is done from abundance. It's done from fullness. It's done from joy that can't be measured and words are just too small and pitiable to ever size it up. The gospel of Jesus' humility is this. Jesus has no emptiness of His own. That emptiness is ours because we've rejected God's heart in all things. But it's an emptiness against God's character. It's an emptiness that can't stand. It's an emptiness that has to be overthrown. And we can't exalt ourselves out of our emptiness. But we can be exalted. We can be exalted by the exalted one who can reach down for us and has. We can be exalted by the exalted one who can climb down for us and has. I think this is important for us to begin to believe and to begin to articulate. It gives us an enormous amount to hold out to our friends and our neighbors and our family and our enemies, those who despise us and hate us, and our city full of strangers. Christianity is often seen and often sees itself as a faith with a theology of emptiness. Actually, it starts from a theology of fullness. How else could Paul exhort us the way he does in this passage? Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Sounds good, but not a chance of that. Because the rule of my heart is me first. Who's looking out for my interests? See, I love to forget 
that the exalted one looks out for my interests perfectly and eternally. Oh, I love to pity myself. No one is looking out for me. And Jesus repeatedly disputes that claim. I am. I chose you in love before the foundation of the world. And I have a manger and a cross and a risen body to prove it. And then there's verse 6. The grasping for positions not ours. The very thing that Jesus rejected. Our grasping comes from fear. From the belief that we have nothing. From the belief that what we have will be taken and ripped cruelly away from us. From the belief that there is not a sovereignly gracious heart that loves me divinely and works to give me endlessly out of that love. And so we grasp for position in desperation. Or further down toward the end of the passage. We grasp at position because we're trying to build for ourselves names. We're terrified that when others say our names, they laugh. They sneer. They spit. And we forget that Jesus, the one who has the name that's above every name, when he says the names of those who belong to him, those whom he loves, when he says their names, he speaks them with an affection that moves worlds. If you're convinced of that love, there is nothing to grasp at. You don't need to grasp for position. Because Jesus has already given to you the position that is highest of all. Son. Daughter. Then there's Paul's injunction at the beginning of the passage, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Sounds right. One problem, I have rivalry in my veins. And jealousy and conceit comes through my pores. And here's what we miss. Why would we be rivals with those who have the same inheritance in Christ? The same share The same participation. What's there to be rivals over anyway? And why would we make ourselves rivals with those who don't have our inheritance? Why do we set up rivalries for much less than what Christ has for us? Why be rivals at all? Can you actually get more for yourself than spectacularly abundant? Is that even possible, Paul is saying. So much of our immaturity comes from a belief that we are still empty. And all of this gives us a new theology of service and we desperately need one. Here's the way we typically do it in the church. Jesus was a servant, you be a servant. Why won't you be a servant? Why do you make Jesus sad? Jesus is crying. The baby Jesus lowered himself and came to be a servant. Why won't you be a servant? Do you want to make the baby Jesus cry? Now, I've exaggerated it to make the point. But what we do in the church is just that silly, and it's just that sad, and it's just that sick, and it's incredibly effective. 
It works every time. You can fill up the rosters for service projects with guilt, but you can't make anyone's heart come alive with it. For ten years, we have not pushed you with guilt. For ten years, we have not done that with you. Because we have waited and hoped that your hearts would wake up and you would come alive to this, that you would take hold of this. Here's the problem. You won't take hold of this. So my question to you is, what do I do now? Do I preach to you guilt? Should I swing it like a bat? I won't. You can't have the fruit of Jesus by using methods that aren't His. But I'll tell you this, if we did preach guilt at New St. Peter's, this place would explode. We would grow like you wouldn't believe because we love law more than gospel. We respond to it. We would blow the doors out of this joint. That's not good enough, though. That's not what Jesus has for us. And yet, at the same time, I think in this passage, the gauntlet is thrown down. In the opening chapters of Revelation, Jesus scolds his churches. And I think in this passage, New St. Peter's, we are being scolded. And Jesus is saying, we either change the way we live as a church, or we go find new places to be the church, every last one of us, right down to the pastor's. But if we decide that we want to stay together, and if we decide that we want what Jesus has for us, then here's our new theology for service and ministry. You serve out of the fullness of Christ. You serve out of your fullness in Christ. Losing nothing of His own, Jesus spent all on you. Losing nothing He has given you, you can spend yourself on each other's and others outside of us. Go go sacrifice yourself. You can't lose any of what Christ has won for you. Go make yourself low. It won't diminish any of the joy that Christ has reserved for you in Himself. Go waste your full inheritance. It will all still be there tomorrow. You can't spend it down. And remember this. Inconvenience is only inconvenience. It's not loss. And fatigue isn't fatal. It's just fatigue and it goes away. And complaint isn't worth the breath you send it out on. And with excuses you rob yourself of confidence and contentment in the gospel. Here's my trick for applying this passage to myself. I preach this to my heart many times a day. I say to myself, what I am, I am in Christ alone. What I am, I am in what Jesus is doing with me. That only. I am nothing except what Jesus is making me. And when I steer my heart with that, that stops my grasping cold in its tracks. It kills my rivalry. It gives me true humility. Not the fake kind we love to throw around like money in the church. And it gives me an eagerness to serve and spend myself in Jesus.
skeptics, you need a new theology of service too. But this may be the most surprising bit of preaching ever directed at you. Jesus came to serve you. He came to earth to serve you. Not to call you to service. That's not where we start. He came to serve you. So find where you're most empty. Find the deepest, darkest, coldest abyss in your heart and your life. And that's where Jesus will serve you and love you. In the fictional world he created. In the realm of Narnia, C.S. Lewis made it so that the reign of sin was always winter in that land and never Christmas. And then there's a scene in the middle of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the spell of sin begins to break and Father Christmas turns up. And he gives gifts that he's brought Peter and Susan and Lucy. For Peter, there's a sword and a shield with a rampant lion on it the insignia of Aslan's army. For Susan, there's a bow that can't miss and a quiver of arrows and an ivory horn to call for help. For Lucy, there's a bottle cut from diamond with a healing elixir in it and a dagger just in case. These are tools, not toys, Father Christmas tells them. He's preparing them for a fight. And then Father Christmas spreads out for them tea breakfast. It's treated like a throwaway detail in the book, but I think it's a pretty significant bit of theology. From joy we go to battle. From fullness we pour ourselves out. That's all this passage is. Aslan comes into the winter and gives gifts that help break it. And that's more than a children's fable. That is the gospel. Jesus has broken the winter of your sin. And from joy, you use his gifts to join in his battle. And you can empty yourselves out with this. In Jesus, you are never empty. So go start living your theology of fullness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. Amen. Now, Lord Jesus, drive away from our hearts the lies we have fed ourselves on and by over the years. Drive from us the deceit that fuels so much of what we do and don't do. The lie that we are empty and we have to grasp for ourselves. We have to protect what is ours. But the gospel is we don't have to look to our own interests because you look to them perfectly and eternally. Now, Lord Jesus, from the abundance and fullness that is ours in the kingship and the gospel of Christ, Give to us the joy and confidence of our limitless inheritance and allow us to spend ourselves and pour ourselves out. We lose nothing in all of it. How can we lose the eternal love that was won for us in your life and your death and your rising? 
There is no loss for us who are in Jesus. Even all of our tears and our sorrows and sufferings, our mercies, they grow us in grace and give glory to our God. There is no deep, lasting loss for us. We belong to the one who puts all wrongs right. And in him, enable us to live and move and minister and have our being. And for these things, we will give you thanks. We ask them in the name of Jesus. Amen.